course, yeah, I have to do a, I have to do a cold open, and I, I'm, I'm rubbish at cold opens, but um, this is probably going to be the cold open for this episode. Um, uh, hello, everyone. Good, e- good evening, everyone who's who's here. Uh, hello in the chat. Um, it's a it's a slight pre-record uh, episode. Yeah, tonight we are uh, joined by Tom Haynes Doran, um, and we're talking about fixing Britain's broken railways. So, um, let's before we do that though, and Tom is here. Hello, Tom. Hello, Tom. Hiya. Hi. Before we introduce Tom properly, we're going to quickly go through some news. There's a couple of bits of news that are quite interesting for us to have a look through. Uh, number one um, is that, uh, well, actually, we're in Germany a lot for the, for the news this evening. Um, so there's the, the, they're calling it the Deutschland ticket, but it's it's really a, a, another, it, it's sort of like a Klima ticket, a bit like uh, Austria has. Um, 49 euros a month uh, from January 2023. This is quite, it's quite good. Uh, and it's for all public transport. Um so this is, I, th- I think this is quite good. Uh, we are long overdue a ticket like this in the UK, but it, it just is not going to happen under current circumstances. But uh, we'll maybe talk about that later. But um, this is good, everyone. This is good news uh, for Germans, at least, travelling by train. Um, another, staying, staying in Germany, a uh, particularly interesting bit of news was, um, and also funny that it's coming out of Hydrogen Insight, whatever, the, I don't know what weird website this is. But um, yeah, Germany is, has finished a, a series of trials on hydrogen train operation. And they've determined that um, battery hybrid or electrified, you know, fully conventional electrified trains are substantially cheaper over even just a 30 year cycle. So that's kind of the standard cycle of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, a piece of rolling stock. So um, this should be a hint for everyone that the hydrogen is, is, is a bit of a dead end. Um, so, yeah, um, hydrogen trains, dead end. Uh, I, I don't know. Have you been following much about the hydrogen train debacle, uh, Tom? Uh, to the extent that, it, you know, I, I think the government are thinking of it as being an alternative to electrification um, from a sort of decarbonisation perspective, but it, it clearly isn't. I mean, yeah. <laughs> hydrogen as a, a, an energy source in general is a highly questionable um, way to decarbonise. It it doesn't really, the, the systems aren't really in place yeah. uh, for it to happen. So. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that, so, so you know, I can understand the the applicability of it in certain circumstances because you yeah. don't you don't get the range out of battery. Hydrogen potentially offers you that range, whilst you know basically sacrificing an entire coach. Uh, so it's okay for longer rural lines potentially, uh, although you know question mark. But the main issue with it, and the thing that certainly always raises my eyebrow, is the extent to which hundreds of millions of euros are being spent in the European Parliament from fossil fuel com- or, or kind of fossil fuel companies lobbying to, for hydrogen to become a thing because mm-hmm. they see it as a transition they, 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 they still get to sell a thing that people burn yeah um, and and, so, and that immediately just makes me suspect of the whole thing so yeah this is very interesting and, and this piece uh, and the general kind of for, for anyone there who wants to uh, gets people shouting about hydrogen being an alternative to electrification there's yet another um tool in our in our toolkit to, to fight against that last news item well it's a relevant one before we get into the episode which is um, the latest on the strikes so we this week it, it's it's been a strike week so there were strikes um supposedly strikes on monday but they were called off fairly last minute so there's still disruption um oh my goodness i just realized that how quickly i've been um, hammering through these slides uh, rail strikes later than i can i can definitely type editing on the fly uh, everyone's used to it so um yeah the 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 fact that we've had this call off is because i i th- I don't know exactly the circumstance, but I, I'm I, I'd be led to believe that Network Rail have offered something more substantial, that they have actually kind of uh, buckled, uh, thanks to the pressure from additional strikes, to actually offer something more substantial. I have a feeling that as it was happening with the Trust government, that the Sunak government just wants this to go away, so might be a bit more lenient uh, in allowing, you know, unlike Shax, who has, had turned it into a big, a big personal vendetta, I don't think that's the case with this with this government. So um, they're probably wanting to have as few battles to fight as possible, um, uh, or or rather, this is one battle that they just can't be bothered to fight. So they're going to kind of um, relinquish a little bit. I, ho- I I think and I hope. So that means that the strikes will be called off for this week, um, but it's not over yet. Uh, we we will wait and see to to, to see what comes out of um, TSSA and the and the and the RMT. Um, from what, what what gets announced, have you have you uh, heard anything else on this on this one? Uh, been following this particular this week's uh, shenanigans, Tom? Um, well, just to say that um, <laughs> actually did cause quite a lot of disruption because they couldn't roster all the staff yes, in time. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Um, in a way, it's quite a clever move uh, potentially from the RMT in the sense that they get to have a strike, but the, the members don't lose any pay. Yes. Um, 
But uh, it's worth bearing in mind as well, the, the RMT are reballoting and putting a lot of effort into that. And often reballoting in and of itself can put pressure on the government. Yeah. Um, and that, that's closing soon. Um, I would be surprised, though, if uh, the government are now just decided to cave in and meet all the demands. No, I don't think it'll be. Yeah, it's not going to be a full cave in because then it's just a massive the, the, the RMT will strike it as a as in they'll they'll record that as a massive win. Yeah. If it's below inflation, then it's a pay cut for railway workers. And the question then for the, the staff is, you know, the individual members is, are they prepared to accept that? Because yeah. it's them that make that decision, not the leadership. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, we'll talk more about unions momentarily. Uh, but before yeah. we do that, because um, I'm trying, oh my goodness, everyone, I'm trying to keep this a tight episode to, to, to not hog hours and hours of Tom's time um, and generally do better at discipline of episodes, which is why me waffling now isn't very good. Anyway. We're going to get on with things. Um, Tom, we'll see Tom momentarily, but uh, everyone else, uh, welcome to tonight's Rail Natter. And as the Intercity 225 fades from view, Oh, we're here. So we're here for a variety of reasons. But Tom, firstly, we, we thanks so much for joining us on on Rail Matter, um, and thanks for pulling this book together. It's it's I, I've I, I've done I've kind of done two reads of it. So I, as ever with these things, you kind of do a quick hammer. Well, as ever with these things, I, I very rarely do interviews about a particular. Uh, you know a book or a thing so uh, for me it's, it's it's a nice new experience to have to read a book and then interview someone related to it so i kind of did a fast skim through i was like oh well, this is interesting and then ended up reading kind of doing more like in-depth reading and ended up reading i think i've read the chapters kind of out of order <laughs> so, <laughs> so i might have to go back and read it from That's the start again but i think partly i'm waiting i'm gonna go and uh, i got a galley copy so i'm probably gonna go and buy a buy a proper copy so that you chalk up an extra purchase and then uh, and then i'll read it in in nice paper form oh um, thank you but it's it's it, it's it's very good i i I'm, I'm enjoying it very much there's um there's lots that we'll pick through in in detail but i i suppose first of all i wanted to ask first we'll get both our, our little faces up hello, hello tom in fact before i do oh, any yeah. of that let's get let's get it. tom feel free to introduce yourself to everyone so um yeah well i i've, I've kind of chalked you up as a political economist and transport specialist but introduce yourself um uh, as you'd wish to be yeah, I'm Tom Haynes Doran. Um, yeah, I've written a book about the railways in Britain, um, and it started as um, actually it started as an essay in a, a master's course in political economy that I was doing at Manchester, and that morphed into a, a PhD uh, I did okay, at yep. SOAS in London, um, and I really wanted to write something um, about the railways and that made some things that hadn't been said before, uh, and. I'm really sort of quite passionate about um, making them work better um, because I have the same feelings as everyone else in this country about them uh, and that, that they're an absolute disgrace. They seem to be getting worse every year. But really trying to get behind why that had happened uh, and what therefore we can do about it. So I, I, I wrote this book because I, if you just do a PhD, no one reads that. So I wanted to write yeah. a book. So <laughs> yes. hopefully more people could um, listen to what I think about it. And, and also, like, it's been great since then to hear people's reactions. And um, there's lots of things uh, I wish I'd covered, actually, which I didn't in the book. So mm. oh, well, um, yeah, we'll get to that because it's, it's, it's yeah. an interesting point. It's often happens with people I, I know who've written books. It's like, oh, that's that, that interesting thing that oh, if I only had waited. But you you always got to draw a line under these things, don't you? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so the book Derailed, How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways is, is, is out now. People can go and buy it from all good bookstores and we'll plug it again at the end. But um, before we do that, though, I thought it'd be interesting for the two of us to both talk through because it's relevant. You, you, you know, the book was written in the context of you know, it, was in, you, it was written in the midst of the. the well, you know, you started writing in 2019, didn't you? Um, yeah. So, so I finished my PhD in, in, in 2019 as before. I think I handed it in before I heard of COVID oh, wow. as a, okay, as a yeah. concept. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know if that was October 2019 or something. Yeah. So 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 it's kind of so it's it's now emerged in 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 kind of a, after two years of a quite radical 
Well, not an alteration. As, as I always point out, an acceleration of trends that are quite well embedded of, of people yeah. moving away from season tickets and, and moving away from, from that sort of style of, of travel. Mm. But anyway, I thought it'd be interesting for us to fairly quickly chat through the, the COVID stats. Um, so, so yeah, we've got here uh, the, the kind of the overall from the start. So these statistics, if you're not seeing them laid out like this, this is the um, this is the relative as a percentage comparison to to the pre-COVID uh, week. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see there's a uh, so that there's cycling up here. So you see this enormous surge in cycling at the start of the, mm. the pandemic because funnily enough, when there are no roads, uh, no cars on the road, uh, cycling is, is much more pleasant. And you can mm. see this enormous drop down to 5% of pre-COVID levels of, of the bottom line, the, the, the bottom line there being uh, rail transport. And you can see we've yeah. been climbing up and then we were hit by wave after wave. So we had a wave and then we had another wave. And since the start of this year, since the start of 2022, we've had a kind of a general macro trend of... Um, increasing ridership up to the point where the peak that we've reached and this is this is a a rolling average so it's smoothed out a bit but if i jump forwards to um this year's data the peak that we reached was i think 97 percent of pre-covid ridership and bearing in mind that's 97 percent as an average across all different categories of travel so that means that leisure ridership is up 120 130 in some instances 140 percent where to make up for the shortfall uh, and not only to make up for the shortfall, but bearing in mind the, the, the major reduction in services is, is within London, where there's a much higher number of travellers. That means that the, the the number of people travelling outside of London is enormously greater than it was pre-COVID. So actually, the railways outside of London are, if for the most part, rammed again. <laughs> they're, they're as full yeah. as ever they were before. This is a point not grasped by government, not grasped by Network Rail's leadership, not grasped by a lot of the, 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 the people who are paid six-figure plus sums to, to, to stand up for the railway. Uh, they're not doing that, and I find this very frustrating. But anyway, uh, yeah, the, the, these are the stats. You can see what's interesting is you can see the effect of various strikes. So the first uh, the first week of strikes had a big impact, but you can see the bounce back was pretty rapid. So the communication of the strike was pretty good. So people knew, oh, it's a strike. I won't travel, um, and then I will travel again when, when, when the strike's finished because ridership went back up again pretty rapidly. Um, the second week of strikes, well, the rail industry has been in a massive level of decline since the middle of summer with, with services collapsing, with all of the staffing issues. Um, and the, the quality, you know, and the ridership is just generally pitching downwards. We saw a bit of a surge again recently. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting seeing that you know, there is this decline again, which is not surprising given that two or three of the main operators now are running reduced services. You know, and in some cases reduced over the previous level of reduced as well. So they're already mm-hmm. already running a reduced timetable, but now that timetable is not robust because they have not employed enough drivers. So, um, yeah, I mean, firstly, before I flick on to the next thing, any, any, this is the first time you're seeing this data kind of perhaps set out like this, or certainly recently. Um, what are your thoughts? Any, any anything, anything particularly you're spotting? Yeah, I, I, I'm still not entirely sure what the, the peak situation is. Um... Uh, I think what I say in, in the book is that, um, and we'll, we'll get onto this later, but uh, one of the things we have to do um, is not just build new railways, but use the railways we have better and the capacity we have better. So um, is, it, is it the case when I, when I wrote, uh, was writing the book early, earlier this year um, that the peak uh, travel seemed to be sort of had leveled out at about 90, 80 to 90% of what it was before COVID, you know, in which case we have to have a conversation about fares because the, the, the point in peak fares is to suppress demand. Yes. But uh, if the roads are congested at peak time and we're trying to decarbonize the economy, there's no justification other than saving money to have those ridiculously high fares. So can we get more people onto the railways that way? Yeah, my, I mean, my, we may touch on this again, but yeah, my view is that peak and off-peak fares are pointless and we should just get rid yeah. of them. There's no, there's, 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 yeah. There are other ways to control uh, demand, um, to be honest. And actually, I, I, we're at a point where rail ridership across different times of day is... Is, is is just doesn't fit you know peak and off peak is is from a period when people commuted into work with a bowler hat and an umbrella it's just not uh, it's just not really a useful there are other more clever ways we could manage ticketing um uh, prices you know that we could be there there are other better things to do but peak and off peak is an anachronism in my view um so anyway yes uh talking of which so so kind of off the back of that there are three before we kind of get sink our teeth into the the, the book and, and the structure of the book and, and why people should pick it up I suppose I wanted to touch on the fact that we're seeing these pressures, these challenges to the to ridership more recently because of, uh, of the kind of the last levers that Treasury has. Because Treasury currently has 
absolute and total control of the railways in a way that has never been the case before to the level of control that Treasury have. Um, there are only three levers left to to to, to control to, to kind of uh, improve as they see it, make the conditional formatting go green on their spreadsheet. Um, and it isn't to improve revenue. It's not to increase revenue. It's mm. to just reduce costs. They're just chase, and it's a chase down a rabbit hole to the to, to the bottom. And it started with staff because the only lever the train operating companies had was staffing. They didn't have any control of anything else uh, under the franchises. We'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, we've seen services cut. So we've seen the statistic I like to say is that um, that this government has presided over a larger reduction in service numbers than Beeching did. Um, so the number of trains running, yes, not in terms of trap mileage being um, closed mm. down, um, but in terms of the number of services running, because we had so many more services running now than we did back in the uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, the number of services that have been reduced is more than Beeching reduced, which is which is quite a remarkable figure. And then stations. Well, that's the next step, of course, is that um, if, if is that they start cut, actually cutting infrastructure to try and reduce costs. Uh, and there are plans I've seen being bouncing around mm. for mothballing lines to reduce costs, which is that's. Uh, I think I, I think there's some some stations that have been on prostitutions since COVID, and they still are in, in some parts yeah. of the country. So so it's yeah. yeah. This is this is not this is not good, and, and this is kind of the context within which. Uh, your book lands, which is kind of, it's kind of like it's it's enormous. So I've never you know, the railways have not been in this level of kind of uh, malaise uh, with with an incredibly malicious management for for quite a number of years. It, it's really peaked. Uh, it's, it, I'd, I'd say we're, we're in a worse state now than we were in 2018, which is the last time there was an enormous meltdown. So yeah. so yeah, so you, you you kind of you structure the. I don't want to spoil things because people should go out and buy the book, but you structure the the, the book kind of almost around a conversation that you have with some fellow travellers, which is nice. Um, and uh, and I quite like this. And through this, you kind of raise these questions as sort of the standard questions that people who travel on the railways um, have when they when they ride. So yeah, I don't know if you wanted to talk. How did you pick through these questions? Did you feel like these were the main questions that are in your mind? Well, talk talk through these. Yeah, I it's it's when you do a, a PhD on something, uh, you're very much encouraged to find a, a very narrow area of uh, research that hasn't been done before. And to focus everything on that, um, and that's fine. But if you're if you're writing a book, um, the, the the particular narrow area isn't probably of interest to most people. Uh, and I always wanted to do my uh, research um, for an audience that would find the information useful, maybe do something with it. Um, so you know, I've been an activist for quite a long time on, on transport, um, and um it's 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 geared towards passengers but it's also arguing that the passengers need to take a stand if they want to have yeah. a better railway system um and, and in order to to take a stand on something you need to be informed so um it's it's the questions that most um that i i've had conversations uh, with passengers um who are most people <laughs> or a lot of people that i meet uh, and it is the it's the basic ones like uh yeah why the trains seem to be late all the time? Why the why the fares so astronomically high? What's causing all these strikes? Um, it's the things that the sort of most annoy you about using the railway system as yeah, an ordinary yeah. passenger. Absolutely, and so yeah, it's 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 interesting that yeah these these it's kind of what I do in real now. It's, it's it's trying to make the point that that, that we have a lot more power than people would like to like than those in charge like to tell us we have mm. and that includes from a from a perspective of, of, of passengers feeding back to the industry but also holding kind of um the the, the management of the industry to account and um I, I, you, know, you touch on this later in the book as well one of the things i wanted to ask though is is to these questions is so the book you know you obviously write the book publish the book is there anything you'd want to add or anything that you kind of wish you'd said uh, to kind of add to any of these questions that, that, or, or kind of how you answer these questions in the book? Because th these are sort of the five big broad questions that you answer. Um, is there anything that you wish you had said on some of these or, or something that's come to light or, or perhaps th th that you wish to add? Yeah, so the, the main thing that's happened since I finished actual writing was the, the national rail strikes. Um, yep. So in the book about strikes, I focus a lot on the guard strike, which yes, was GTR. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, two, two or three years ago. Uh, and at that time, that was considered to be, depends how you measure it, but the the, the, the biggest strike in the history of the railways. Uh, I, I worked out by 
by adding up a lot of different press reports, 154 days of, of strike action were taken on different TOCs in that period. Um, and I talk about the uh, the relationship uh, between um, people going on strike and the passengers and the, and the different sorts of power that they hold and their different sort of abilities uh, to change the system. Um, and, you know, there's always there was always this issue of public support for the strikes, which becomes really important uh, in a strike. Yep. What surprised me. Uh, to some extent, has been the massive public support for these national rail strikes. Um, the other thing I say about the rail unions is um, I feel that historically, really what they're making when they're going on strike is a bid for lots more government funding. Um, given the terrible finances of the railways, uh, I don't think they can be successful in that unless they incorporate um, arguments around just transition and decarbonisation. Yes. Otherwise, it's just lots and lots of money, you know, and for what? Yeah. Just for moving some people around. Uh, historically, I don't think they had much of a relationship with the environmental movements. And they could be, you know, criticised them to some extent for that. That does seem to have changed as well. So Mick yeah. Lynch does often talk about decarbonisation now. And there were joint, sort of jointly organised uh, protests with... Um, uh, I think just stop oil or yeah, yeah. Uh, extinction rebellion in London. So you're starting to see a formation, uh, if you like, of a broader social movement that encompasses transport, but also these wider questions too. And that's where the hope lies, really. I think. Yeah, I was going to say you, 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 and for people who think this book is oh, it's just you know going on, it's oh, it's a uh, make belief about what the railways could be. It's, you're quite you're not not hypercritical, but you are critical of the union's lack of communication during the GTR strikes. So during the um, the strikes about uh, you know selective door opening and 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 single driver, you know the the DCO sort of um, uh, drive controlled operation sort of um, strikes. Uh, and right, uh, okay, so my my politics have moved on a bit since those strikes were happening, and I'm I'm much more explicitly pro union now than I was when I when, when I've, I've I've grown up. As the the idea that you get more conservatives, you get older is bollocks, um, as <laughs> as anyone can tell you. So as I, I'm I'm slow, but if you plot my course in about ten years, I'm probably going to be a, an anarcho communist. But anyway, uh, so f at this point, I look back, kind of and compare the communicate but i think that the, the strong criticism you made is, is absolutely right is that the communications of the rmt at the time was, was not was not good i i mean it's it's a bit of a stretch to say they're strong criticisms what i recognize yeah. is that they were uh, for many years alone almost in being a, a militant industrial union yeah. they didn't have a lot of support around them so that they came quite insular in some respects yes. so that the whole argument was uh, they pitched it was around safety which isn't, which is technically correct, um, but I, I feel like it took the efforts of uh, disability passenger groups to, to really highlight to this, like this issue of yeah. driver-only operation and the, the terrible inaccessibility that that would cause. That ultimately, I think, led to them them winning most of the strikes yep. uh, on that issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were eventually open to it, so I'm not saying that they, but you know. It, it, it's part of a learning process uh, that we're all going through, but but having that sensitivity to the needs of the passengers has yeah, got to be at the forefront. It was the first strike that was in the modern... It was the first major series of strikes that was in the modern social media age, where the comms, they needed to be communicating... So back, you know, all they needed to do to communicate to the public was, was a few news appearances in the past. Uh, and it was very much the communication channels were to their members, whereas now the communication from the unions is much more public, much more public facing than it was before. At least my perception of it is it's much more publicly facing. Uh, and I think the latest set of strikes shows that there is a very successful media strategy. The RMT, Mick Lynch is fantastic. The RMT strategy has been really successful, and I and I think it's it's been improved by tying it into this broader messages of what why the railways are important to the country and why people should care about them and decarbonisation you know um the climate is, is absolutely a critical part of that yeah absolutely so um what i'm going to do now i think is um is uh hop us uh, firstly resize uh, your, uh, editing on the flyers uh, as as always so i want to talk briefly about um uh, the life and death of franchising so uh what I mean by this is I just wanted your kind of fairly brief thoughts on we've seen the end of franchising. We've seen franchising rise. We've seen it fall. Um, my argument about franchising is that it was essentially just outsourcing 
uh, an organization for the to, to avoid the government taking responsibility for things that it basically still had power over. Um, what, what, what do you think? What's and kind of the, the last thing I want to say is, is is then what you know what's actually next? So not so much what you'd like to be next, and not what you think the government wants to be next, but what do you think will actually happen next? Uh, I I agree with what you say. I think there's another aspect to it too, and and uh, this is something I was really interested to investigate more because you you hear that privatisation in many ways was an attack on on the workforce of the union, uh, and but there hasn't been much written on it. So I go into that in a bit of detail, yeah. and it's essentially this idea of having um, the, what to franchise what what a franchise is for. Uh, which is the Christian Walmart question. Well, the answer yeah. to that is um, that the the intention of privatization, unbelievably, was to reduce government subsidy. So it was, uh, in, in today's terms, about £2 billion a year that British Railways were operating under. Before COVID, we were up to £12 billion yeah. a year. Um, but they wanted to cut even that small amount. Uh, and uh, what, what do the franchises do? Well, when they bid for the franchise, different pr private companies come in um, and they say to the government, I'm going to run uh, these broad level of services for less money than the other company. Uh, and as you've uh, illustrated, the only way they can do that is to um, cut, cut staffing yeah. costs. So they're making a bet against other private companies that they're going to be more effective at attacking the workforce than the other company. Um, and... Um, the, the whole the whole point about uh, the chapter on on strikes and the rail unions is that they haven't they haven't it hasn't been effective yeah. um, and partly the reason for that is the way that the unions have recalibrated their organization over time um so so the purpose of of franchises isn't uh, about the logos and the innovative fairs or whatever that, that it's supposed to be about uh the the, the fundamental um uh, point of it and to have that competition for the contracts is to attack the labor force and that hasn't gone away i think yeah. so arg arguably a company like stagecoach or first are better at, at attacking workforces and dealing with militant trade unions than the government is itself uh, so stagecoach have got you know and first have got lots of experience from the bus industry yeah. and now the rail industry in doing that so that's my um take on uh, whether it's franchising or concessions, essentially they've become the same thing anyway, because there's yeah. no yeah. Um, there's no um, private sort of decisions over the timetables or anything like that yeah. anymore. Uh, and it's just like uh, we're going to hire you as as a we're going to give you that two or three percent guaranteed revenue, which is by the way a fantastic thing for a private company to have guaranteed revenue. You can make a lot of extra money on the side through financial speculation on that uh, but also you know we are it, we are industry experts uh, at dealing with militant trade unions um, so I feel that that's why that you know uh, by the sounds of it, all parties are still thinking about the concession model or going along with what is essentially a management or concession model now yeah because it is we talked a little bit about this before recording didn't we that um yeah that labor my understanding is currently Labour are not really proposed as much as they're making a big deal about we're going to renationalise. Is that they're, they're not? They're going to do a they're going to do a concession model, <laughs> and what they might do is that they might have a bit like they're talking about with energy. They may have a state operator that could bid bid for those concessions and pick them up. That's my that's my current understanding. But that it's just a load of unnecessary admin. To, to, to try and essentially pander to this. And of course, it doesn't talk about the one thing which actually, which I've not put on here, which 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 I do want to talk about, which we'll maybe bring up a moment. In fact, it's, it's, now it doesn't tackle the, the main. So the main area where money leaves the industry is not through the train operating companies. It's through the rolling stock operating companies. It's mm. through the enormous leasing costs. Um, yeah, I, to, to, to what extent, um, to what extent was it easy for you to pick out the impact of the rolling stock operating companies within within the structure and the system was, was that quite difficult to, to pick some of those numbers up oh the numbers yeah it is it's fairly difficult um i should say that there's been quite a decent amount of scholarship on the on the rolling stock companies and in, in academic journals mm. um which which is really worth looking at okay yeah, um yeah. but but they all they all uh they all say that the uh essentially the the payments are hidden um yeah. 
Uh, and because when it's train up, there was I remember that graphic that was a train ticket, and they'd slide. And I think it was the RDG did it. They sliced it up, saying what percentage goes where, and they're like, "Oh, look, only little little one and a half, two percent goes to profit." And then there was like thirty percent of it was like train leasing costs. Train like, leasing costs. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's um, a profit. Most of that's profit. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. So the the train up the the, the uh, rolling stock companies are essentially in a position of uh, effective monopoly or duopoly, whatever you want to call it. There is there is no competitive market, uh, and that's because you can't you can't just um, uh, it's not like cars where you can just sell a car to someone in Scotland and they can drive it round. They are specifically designed for specific purposes, so you can't have a uh, an effective um, unregulated market in, in rolling stock. Um, and the, the new Labour government um, looked at regulating them, but decided not to in the end. Uh, and as I say in the book, the main, the main reason they, they did that is because they didn't want, even though it would be cheaper, they didn't want the debt of the, the rolling stock companies on the government's balance sheet. Yeah. So a lot of this comes down to this sort of um, treasury obsession with accounting figures yeah with the debt, uh, debt everything has to be about to the debt to gdp ratio everything yeah. has to be about that nothing else matters right yeah um so so um what would you what what should we do about it uh well you, you could if you were to renationalize them you'd, you'd probably have to pay the market rates unless we're going to have a government that doesn't pay market rates when it renationalizes in which case that would be a unique and new situation in british history you know yeah. would be looking at a, some kind of communist government probably um the 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 sort of easier and cheaper uh solution to that is just to create a publicly yeah. uh, owned rolling stock um builders like we used to have uh, and start to uh, edge out the uh, and create genuine competition against the uh, the private rolling stock companies who it must be said you know are mostly based in tax havens and this is one of the reasons you can't investigate their accounts because they're um you know they're, they're through these myriad uh, structures of companies and you can't actually investigate their accounts um, because they're deliberately put put into tax havens. Yeah, and, and, and I often, so there are a variety of, 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 of fake arguments I often hear of people justifying the, the rolling stock operating companies. Well, like, oh, but they do all sorts of fantastic engineering and, you know, they've got these in, 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 really innovative teams. They're like, yeah, those people, those people wouldn't just disappear into thin air. Those people would be at a, so my view is that the train, that the train operating companies should have their own rolling stock. Like the, the trains should the, the people who operate the trains should also own those trains because then they've got a bit of a, a stake in, um, in in actually being able to fit them out with the new kit. You know, if they invest in improving the passenger. Well, a good example is that Northern invested a huge amount of money in upgrading uh, the interiors of some of their older rolling stock to bring it up to so improving the Wi-Fi, but also a load of sensors to kind of check up whether there's this uh, trying to second guess failures and all that sort of thing the rolling stock operating companies want them to rip all that kit out when they get the trains back which is just right. an absolutely bonkers situation to be in so yeah so yeah the train operating companies should be empowered to buy their own to procure their own trains and that and, and then eventually that would just price the rolling stock operating companies out of existence um yeah and, and it, it but it would get rid of franchising as well because because you, you'd have to have uh 30 well, 40 yeah. year franchises um well their franchises I, I, are gone anyway so so the concession model will be that the concession model is such that that, that, that they there would be an incumbency anyway so kind of i think that, that, that yeah. no matter what the future structure is i suppose we kind of dodged around the answer to this didn't we whatever the future structure is going to be it's going to be there will be an incumbent uh, organization that runs those trains and the only thing that will change will be the the kind of the, the secondary label on the paycheck um yeah i mean i mean the the, the whole point about the, the the shaps plan the william shaps plan seems to have imploded i mean it didn't it didn't resolve the major problems of of the railways uh, as a plan that, that are raised in the book but it, at least it was going to have create some kind of uh uh gov government department um which was responsible for running the railways. Whereas at the moment we have this DFT rail uh, running the system, which doesn't want to be doing it. Um, we have a regulator uh, who uh, whose job it is, is to say whether one part of the government's fairly charging another part of the yeah. government for services. Yeah, their job is to watch wooden dollars go around in a circle. That's, that's yeah. the point. <laughs> as, as if there's some kind of a market. Yeah. Um, a so, so, you know, can we start to have some kind of sanity? Apparently not. Uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm not no. quite sure what the next plan is, but um, that took what 
six oh, years. Oh goodness, yes, yeah. yeah uh, uh, no, it was well, yeah, uh, roundabout. But it was, yeah, it was, it was up to this point four years now since since it was announced at the end of 2018. So um, yeah, and pe people forget that the, the the original reason for having it was uh, massive disruption um, to the railways that. Uh, leading up to that, and that that was never addressed eventually by the review. They just said, uh, "We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna yeah. have Great British Railways." So there you go. So there you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, let's let's um, hop into another question that I think is interesting because I, I, I'm not sure to what I don't think. So this isn't something that you touch on a huge amount in the book. So I was interested to pick your brains yeah. on it a bit, which is devolution, the role of devolution, the future role of devolution. Um, one of the thesis, one of the kind of um, things that I, in fact, John Stone and I, John Stone of The Independent and I both kind of uh, get up on a soapbox and shout about is that we essentially cannot have a successful public transport system without massive devolution of, of specifically funding powers away from Treasury to, to, the, to the regions and to the cities to be a bit more in line with our European friends and colleagues, um, where rather than it being just Brit, you know, just the UK government uh, paying for everything, and therefore having the control or the lack of interest in anything happening outside of its sphere of interest. Um, the regions take control, um, so you'd have, you know, a, a city region like like Greater Manchester, say, would have its own funding pot, and it could decide to spend that money um, on on stuff within the city, or it could decide to pull that money with another funding pot, say, Transport for the North, and maybe combine that funding pot with another city's funding pot and then pay for something like the new Transpennine uh, high speed line. So, so that, that, that's my view of the future, the future need. But what, what are your thoughts on devolution? What, 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 what do you think? This, I mean, this is an enormously complex area. Yes. Um, there's, there's different aspects to it, I think. So there's the national question, yeah. um, which is, you know, Scotland and Wales primarily. Um, does it make sense for them to have control over their franchises? I think it does. And, and devolution of network rail. Yeah. Um, but there's a, a, another aspect, which is the sort of, uh, so they came out of political movements for in, independence or, or something going towards yeah. independence. That's a bit different to the, um, the Osborne, uh, George Osborne plan uh, to create these sort of uh, city region uh, devolution deals. Um, that we see in in places like West Yorkshire, Greater Manchester. Yeah. You know. um, that's a bit different, I think. Um, the the way that that was set up, and don't forget that was set up in the context of austerity. Yeah. Um, and that austerity was never recovered. So we're we're still in that in that austerity before the austerity 2.0, which is coming now. Um, the idea with that is to have a competitive system. Uh, between the the city regions, in order to bid for an ever dwindling yeah, uh, supply yeah, of yeah. resources from from central government. Um, now, I think that's very very problematic uh, because it can lead to, and especially when we're talking about climate change, but also we're talking about a rail system which is necessarily interregional. Yeah. Um, it can lead to a problem of uh, of uh, the politics of it, just saying. Uh, London's got some more stuff than us. We want more stuff like London, which is sort of Andy Burnham's position on most yeah. things, um, which is true. Um, but but there's also a national problem. That there's, not, there's not enough funding for the public for public transport in general. Um, and so how does does that competitive system that's been created lead to a um, a uh, not a race to the bottom, but a scrambling over a so, dwindling. Yeah, dwindling. So, so I suppose my, my, my response to that would be that, um, yeah, that, so firstly, there should be no more competitions for funding ever. So I just, any, mm. there should never be competitions for, for government funding. That's just a ridiculous situation that, that shouldn't exist. I suppose for me, it's taking what um, was, yeah, created absolutely in light of austerity, which was the city regions, and, and essentially converting those into something more akin to the, the city regions that you have in the European mainland, that, that is a devolved st kind of strong government unit that yeah. uh, by, by necessity represents a smaller number of people than, than the national government. Therefore, people feel more represented. One of the reasons why Brexit happened is because Westminster was so distant from people, they didn't feel represented. They didn't feel like their own... Uh, needs were being mm. met in any way they didn't have that connection to, to mm. government and they directed that ire towards the eu when actually it was really westminster that was the problem and, and decades of over centralization so for me it's about that if you devolve a a funding no matter what that rather than being a competition what you would do is devolve a set funding packet to the package to the 
that would roll on to each of the city regions and to the to the subnational transport bodies. Um, and no matter how big or small it was, it would be a guaranteed funding that they would have control over. So Treasury would have no say in that money. They wouldn't be able to switch it on or off. It would be statutorily money that the regions would have. And therefore, they could build the consensus to do the stuff they need to do. One of the arguments I make about, well, not uh, one of the facts of Greater Manchester Public Transport is the only successful transport project in terms of rolling and, and, and continuing to be developed and deployed um, is Metrolink. Uh, and it's it, unlike all of the other projects going on, Metrolink is the only one that is regionally or rather city administered. All the others are national or Westminster administered, and it, and it and that's why they've stumbled, they've you know been chopped, changed, um, cancelled, etc. Yeah, so so it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? And I, I think would you want them to have tax raising powers to yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, they would, so, so it's, for me, I mean, one of my main things that I bang, I don't have the mug up with me here, but it's that we need to abolish the Treasury. So I, I'm very anti-Treasury. I think Treasury simply should not exist. Um, it should be a, a non-ministerial sort of sub-body, a bit like the HM, a bit like HMRC. Um, it, 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 was, it is set up and it runs for a particular interest in our society. Yeah. Um, so when we say that, we're saying that we're going to be attacking those interests. And I, I think this is what it comes down to. So... Um, the long and short of it is there is no magic. I agree, there is no magic money tree. Yeah. There is no magic solution to the railways that doesn't, that doesn't involve, even though the subsidy went up five di times since privatization and went up and doubled again after that because of the COVID uh, yeah, yeah. outbreak. Even though those things are true, and that is a huge amount of money, we need to spend more on it than, than we're, we're currently spending. Yeah. Um, and so that is a, a huge amount of money. And there is only one place that can come from. And that's from the people who already have huge amounts of money, which is, you know, the 0.5% of the population yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that politically, in effect, uh, are in control of the Treasury. Yeah. And it's and that's other things like, yeah, I mean, you, d you discuss a bit about not wanting to increase the cost of driving to too rapidly because of the socioeconomic impact of doing so um but you know fuel duty for example um the freezing of fuel duty has cost uh about the amount that the railways need extra a year um as a specific political choice so it, it yeah the, the money the point i was making is the there is the money is there um, and also, it's not a zero-sum game. Is if you make investments in, you know, if, if Britain's economy has been stagnating since 2010, um, and one of the, one of the things we have not done is invest in transport. Transport infrastructure is a way to um, to sustainably grow an economy in such a way that you actually spread uh, and, and you know increase tax revenue, uh, which then allows you to pay off the debt. Uh, anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Go on, go on, Tom. That, no, that's true. And, and, and also, you know, um, in, in, in city regions, uh, about a third of the journeys made um, are, are under one kilometre. Yeah. Uh, sorry, a third of the journeys made by car are under one kilometre. All those car journeys are creating a huge cost on society uh, in many ways, but also in financial terms. You know, all this, uh, y y when you see transport discussed in the right wing media, it's usually issues around congestion and, and potholes. Yeah. Uh, and so, therefore, most of the, the money from central government goes to alleviating congestion and potholes, yeah. which means building more roads and building more One space more lane. One more lane will fix it. You know, exactly. That, that sort of attitude. Yeah, and that, that is the elephant in the room. You're right. Uh, and so that, that, that brings us sort of on to you can't really think about a solution to the railways without tackling um, – the, the road industry or the car industry and the, and the roads that they yeah, absolutely which which as we've seen with ltns although interestingly it's one one thing that can be said for for weirdly for the the, the johnson and for andrew gilligan actually a man who i despise um is the the only thing the stopped clock thing was that, that they did actually they were genuinely attempting and to give central government back into local authorities to actually tackle some of this car dominance in a way that ironically enough they were also building yeah. out roads everywhere but it was one I genuine mean, good thing was this is a bit, someone someone asked me uh, in one of my book launches uh why did the tory government introduce uh you know uh new rail cards and I was, that stumped me a bit i thought yeah, actually that was a good thing wasn't it um you know i i think with those sorts of questions that there has been a lot of campaigning on those issues over many years yeah. uh, and and sometimes those campaigns do break through absolutely um, even with the worst conservative governments. So, uh, conscious of time, uh, we're going to jump to uh, to kind of uh, round things out, really, which is a, 
kind of the, the big question that has never been and, and you, this is this is a point that you make in the book which i really like because from it's another one that it's, it's one that i really strongly agree with there's there's no plan there's no real agreement on what railways for and and, and no one's attempted to tackle this since since beaching um and beaching didn't even really grab the bull by the horns we were talking before this we mentioned barbara castle well again she really grabbed the bull by the horns uh the modernization yeah. plan attempted this but didn't so, so really, we've we've never really agreed what the purpose of the railways is. What are the railways for? Um, and I well, thought, I've yeah. I've got five minutes, and I, there's no way I can answer. That. <laughs> yeah, that's it. you've got three minutes to tell us. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, this is it. So, um, whenever we're making a, we have to make decisions about what um, we can do with the resources available to society, and those resources are usually measured in in monetary terms. Yeah. Um, so if, if I'm saying that instead of 20 billion pounds a year, the railway should have 40 billion pounds or something, uh, then for what purpose? Um, and you mentioned all those previous initiatives. They were based on an erroneous assumption that the railways could pay for themselves yeah. at some point. Yeah. Uh, I think it's been agreed. I think this is one thing I can say about the discourse around railways over the past five or 10 years that actually has been an advancement is I think everyone realizes now that they never will. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we don't have a vision of what they're supposed to be for. Um, and as I argue in my book, uh, you know, we've we've just waved goodbye to the Holocene, which is the, the period in the Earth's history when uh, human beings flourished, the Goldilocks yeah, period. Yeah. Um, we're heading towards four degrees of, of warming in the next 80 years. Now that's likely to bring another eight. That's going to wipe everything out. Um, so we have to put the climate emergency first, Absolutely. especially in the industries that are obviously related to the issue. And we know now that transport is the largest emitter yep. of um, yep. carbon emissions. Um, so then you have to think about, well, what sort of transport system do we need? And I try and do this in my last chapter, but it's really, I'm trying to open a conversation. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it, can, it can only ever be a, a, a democratic discussion about what yeah. we want our railways to be for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so I... Um, I, I question whether, and I'm not going to get into HS2 on, on this podcast because that's another issue as well, but I question whether, uh, in general, we need to be aiming towards having very long-term large in infrastructure projects as a, as a solution. Uh, and um, given that we've got maybe 10 years to, to get to grips with the bulk of the decarbonisation, um, what can we do with the, mostly with the infrastructure that we have? Um, you know, and, and um, reducing demand for rail travel is, is sorry, for travel in general is massive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we need to think about um, how to get um, the roads to be more efficient, uh, how to electrify them and how to electrify the railways. So, you know, it, it goes into the thing about transport is it's not. Um, it, it doesn't just sort of produce stuff for, for immediate consumption. It, it, people, generally speaking, and I think um, viewers on this channel and you and me might be a bit different. People don't generally get trains for the sake of it. Uh, they, they're usually doing it for some yes. other purpose. So yeah. you have to look at that some other purpose. Is it really necessary for that journey to happen? Uh, and can we make it easier for people not to have to travel so much? Um, so that the whole thing about working from home was... Uh, an accidental advantage, if you like, uh, in this whole thing. But still, you know, um, most of the time you're on these Zoom calls, people are speaking from their kitchen huddled over and they're Absolutely. freezing cold. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. Our so Britain's not really built for it, yeah. So it goes to a question of how society uh, works and, and how we carry out um, the things we need to do in our lives to, to, to help us survive and, and flourish. So you have to look at the whole picture first unfortunately, before you can have an answer to what the railway should do. Absolutely. Um, but there's some things that we can say for certain, uh, like we obviously uh, have to get rid of internal flights. Yeah. Uh, and, yep. and for me, it's not a question of having the right incentives uh, for people not to use the flights. No, they should just be, yeah, just be banned. Um, it, one thing I mentioned in the book, uh, for example, is I think it's Andrew Haynes. I think he's the chief exec of uh, Network is, Rail. Yeah. So he did a, a during the COVID pandemic, he was asked to do this report about what do we do about the regional airports uh, that they, they, they require massive government uh, subsidy uh, and that the, the COVID pandemic will probably be sinking them economically. Um, 
and he's he's he recommended an ind- independent review uh for the government to inject hundreds of millions of pounds into them at that point and he had to address the decarbonization issue um but what he said about that was all this nonsense about uh, ne- um, jet zero which we all know is just a complete fantasy um but he also said um it's not reasonable for people to be expected to um use other forms of transport uh, between, for example, Aberdeen and London. Uh, you know, so instead of that, that money could be put to the railways improving that service, but instead it's been put into regional airports and it's the chief executive of Network know, Rail. So. Yeah, hugely frustrating. Tom, I'm conscious of your time. I've hogged, I've already hogged way too much of it. Um, I'm going to quickly close out. So uh, as ever, audio only, thanks thanks for listening. Uh, this will be up uh, very soon, uh, all good podcasting platforms. Um uh, the, the the Patreon, patreon.com slash Gareth Dennis to make more of this happen, paypal.me slash Gareth Dennis to throw loose change and abuse at me and garethdennis.co.uk for more of the YouTube chat at the Discord, uh, garethdennis.co.uk slash Discord that is um, the book, Derailed uh, How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways We uh, you can get it anywhere anywhere that sells books um, do you have a preference as to where people should be buying it from, Tom? No, I mean, I generally try to avoid Amazon. Yes. Uh, but it, it's easily done. Um, apparently, Hive are a good uh, choice, but oh, nice, yeah. any online book sales will be able to get it to you. Perfect. Uh, that, that's great. And, and next week uh, is something which I'm going to insert into the edit here. So that's great. <laughs> We've got Dr. Kevin Tennant back. Uh, returning champion uh, Dr. Kevin Tennant is joining us to talk about uh, trams versus buses and why why the permanence of the permanent way is important. Uh, so uh, tune in for that. It should be fantastic. The last thing to say really is, um, Tom, uh, thank you so much for your time. You've, you've given us more time than, um, than, than planned. That's my fault. Sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's been absolutely fantastic having you. And um more discussion to be had i think uh, on well uh, and I, I should say i really appreciate everything you do with the channel and all the stuff i see you do on social media and i think there's a there's a growing movement within um the transport world uh for, for the for these kinds of arguments and uh, i think that you know we're, we're, we're on to something here and we need to keep going absolutely got to keep banging that drum tom thanks so much all right take care cheers